All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is April 21st, 2023, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking via phone with Cleo Washington, who is located in Montgomery, Alabama. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? Uh, South Bend, Indiana, 1961, uh, November 12th. Okay, and what were your parents' names? Uh, my father was George Washington. My mother was uh, Cora B. Uh, C-O-R-A-B-E-A, uh, Washington. And what were your parents' occupations? My father worked in uh, for a factory, for the Bendix factory. My mother, uh, when she worked, she worked at a nursing home. Um, my father didn't have an education, but my mother did. But my father was a veteran of World War II, so he was often able to find, like most veterans, uh, physical jobs and factories. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, do you have any siblings? Yes. Uh, I have several. Uh, I said the, the number. Um, I never get the number correct because I have an original group, and then when my father got remarried, so I have, I think, all together 10. Uh, okay. Uh, so I don't know if you want me to count them or not. <laughs> That's close enough. That's right. Yeah. It sounds like it's yeah, a lot. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, how would you describe your childhood? Uh, it was it was a good childhood. Uh, I didn't realize uh, how poor uh, I was until I got to high school and got to college. It was a good childhood. It was uh, I spent a lot of time in poverty. Okay. And I lived on uh, two sides of South Bend growing up. One, the poor side, or the I guess, yeah, relatively poor side, and one, the really poor side. So <laughs> that's the way I define them now. Uh, one kind of barely in poverty, and the other in extreme poverty. Wow. Okay. And who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood? Uh, well, my parents were divorced in 1969, I believe when I was eight years old. So uh, most influential, uh, of course, was my uh, father. Um, and part of it was just because of you know his background being a World War II veteran. He didn't have an education background. I believe he only uh, finished uh, seventh grade. Okay. But he was he was probably the single most influential. But I lived with him part time, with my father and my stepmom part time, and then part time with my uh, mother and my uh, my mother and my uh, stepdad. And of course, my mother, my father was more I think influential on. The type of uh, work ethic I developed and uh, my religious upbringing, up, upbringing because he attended church a lot. And as a kid, uh, I probably resented uh, having 
attend so much church while I live with my father. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when I live with my mother, I had a lot more uh, freedom and flexibility. But when I live with my mother, it was on, again, the more economically depressed uh, part of town in South Bend. At that time, it was the west side of town. Uh, but, uh, but my mother had a great influence on my morals because she was a very uh, moral person and very uh, giving and as I get older, I remember uh, the things that I resented. The one thing I resented the most about my mother was the thing that I valued uh, most as I matured into an adult. And that was uh, she was extremely uh, giving. And uh, the one thing I resented was I could rarely have seconds after I ate dinner. Ah. And the reason was uh, she would keep the food for a lot of the other poor people in the neighborhood that wow. would inevitably uh, walk by and you know want a sandwich or use whatever excuse to say they hadn't eaten and she would feed them. And growing up, I resented it as a teenager and because I thought they were just uh, lazy people and why should she feed them? Right. As opposed to really having a true, uh, from my perspective, a true uh, Christian heart and living out Christianity more than simply the words and her willingness to feed the, hung, the hungry. And so even today, I try to engage in as many uh, nonprofit activities as possible, but particularly those where you're able to help those who are less fortunate. And outside of that, I had a great set of teachers uh, that had a huge influence from the time I was in, I think, first grade. Um, I had Mr. Uh, Old, Oldham. He's no longer uh, living. I forget Mr. Oldham's first name. Uh, Mr. Uh, Archie Bradford, who was um, a great role model. Uh, Mr. Henry, and I forget now Mr. Henry's first name. Um, then I had when I got to the uh, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I had a set of African-American female teachers back-to-back, -back, uh, Mrs. Um, uh, Smith, uh, Valerie Smith, because her husband uh, later, I had her in the uh, third grade. Anyway, her husband later became a great role model to me and was the head of a program that had a huge influence on my life, the Notre Dame Upper Bound Program. Anyway, I had Valerie Smith, and I had Claudine Black, who later became a great friend of mine. And then I had uh, Mrs. Uh, Bradford, and I don't remember Mrs. Bradford's first name. She's still uh, living. She lives, I know, out. No, she's still in Indiana. She's still in South Bend, Indiana. Okay. So her, son, her son is a, a friend of mine. He's a, anyway, he's a PhD out. He teaches out in California. But Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Black, and Mrs. Bradford were all uh, incredible uh, teachers and, uh, you know, had a huge influence. And then I had, uh, who else was it? But, but mostly it was uh, teachers uh, that I would say had the, uh, the biggest influence. Yeah, okay. And... What did you know about your family's political views growing up? Uh, very little other than the importance of voting, because I was born in 1961, 
right. uh, for four years uh, prior to passage of the Voting Rights Act. So my uh, parents were, like many African-American parents growing up in South Bend, Indiana, they were involved in one form or another of the civil rights movement and the, the efforts to ensure that you got the basic civil rights that were insured with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and then, of course, the Voting Rights Act of 65. And so um, my mother was involved in litigation, that's right, with the school corporation, and and one of my fathers, I have a copy of it, I think in 1966, she was one of the plaintiffs in a uh, discrimination lawsuit against the uh, South Bend Community School Corporation, and and the reason I remember when I did research, this was you know 25 years ago, or when I got elected to the Senate, I guess more than 25, 26 years ago. But in any event, uh, I was able to find the article that showed her name as one of the plaintiffs, and the mention of two of my uh, brothers as uh, two of the many children that were impacted by the uh, desegregation. Uh, we had in the school system. Wow, okay. So your parents were involved with lots of stuff, especially your mom. Jeez. Yes. That's impressive. Okay. Um, and so what schools did you attend growing up? Well, I, uh, since I moved back and forth, since I lived with both parents, uh, my first school was uh, Clinton School, uh, C-L-I-N-T-O-N. That's when I lived with my dad, and I think that was like the first, second grade. Then I moved to the um, other side of town with my mother and I attended Linden School, which was a historic school, and I was there probably, I guess, uh, third, fourth grade. And then I went to uh, Kennedy School, which was a new school they built, and I went to Kennedy, I think, if I remember, maybe uh, fifth and sixth grade. Then I went to Central School for seventh grade, and Central was a famous um, high school in South Bend. Uh, Central at John Wooden, I'm not sure if you're much in the sports center, John Wooden was yeah. a former basketball coach there, and it had closed as a high school, and by the time I got to seventh grade, it remained open as a middle school. And so I went to Central High School, uh, Central Bears, for one year in the seventh grade. Then I went to Dickinson Middle School uh, for the uh, eighth and ninth grade. And then I went to LaSalle High School. I graduated uh, from LaSalle in 1981. Okay. And did you have any uh, favorite subjects in school? Probably. I, I loved school, so it's in everything. Um, I guess history, um, English. Uh, when I was in high school, actually, I loved Spanish, and that was probably a big mistake I made of not continuing Spanish. Um, but I, I loved pretty much everything. I, I loved the whole idea of being in school and uh, interacting. So. Yeah, okay. And um, when did your family first get to Indiana? Um, well, before I was born, but I'm trying to remember. Um, I, I don't remember exactly being. I will say uh, 
majority of my brothers and sisters that were older than me. I was born in 61, so my uh, oldest brother would have probably been born in 53 or 54. So I would say around, yeah, 1953 or 54. Okay, got it. And uh, how did you view the state of Indiana growing up? Did you have much thought about what it meant to be someone from Indiana or... Uh, I, I viewed it differently after the summer of, of 1969 uh, when my parents got divorced. That first summer, we were shipped, um, or at least some of us, I was shipped, me and my sister. Uh, I don't remember if all of us went uh, down to my dad's father, uh, my grandpa in Louisiana, in Mattery, Louisiana, which was right outside of uh, New Orleans. Okay. And that's when I first started to realize how living in the, at that time, living in the South and the North were really two different Americas. Yeah, and and I remember my father giving me lessons on one of my uh, one of my my best friends in in school uh, was um, a young uh, white girl. We all you know we had very integrated schools then. And sure, so, yeah. but uh, and I remember and so I you know played with. You know, whatever half my friends were white, half were black. And I remember my father's instructions. I still re- remember this, although that was uh, uh, 50 years ago, over 50 years ago. He told me whenever I, if I saw a white woman uh, walking on the street or towards me to keep my head down, and it was just very confusing to me. And I said, why, Daddy? And he explained to me, this kid, I, I didn't you know, remember his name two years later when I read about it, which was you know, Emmett Till. Yeah. Uh, that occurred right before uh, I was born. And how some places in America, they, you know, if you get caught looking or someone is perceived, whatever you say, how it could be deadly for you. And yeah, it was just a shocker to me because again, a lot of my uh, good friends were, were white. So anyway, so I got down to Louisiana, and and I remember Mattery was right, if I recall correctly, and this may be a little off. It was literally across the train tracks from New Orleans, and so when we crossed into New Orleans, with my granddad lived in Mattery, and crossed into New Orleans. Uh, remember the guidance, whatever we did, you know, we were in a group, stay in a group, and most importantly, if you see uh, a white female, to put your head down. Wow. As you walk by or as she walked by you, and I remember it, you know, because it was just such a contrast yeah. to uh, being at home. And so that was, and of course, down there too, I was able to see they still had some signs up, which my dad had told me about, and, you know, you saw even though this is five years after the 64 Civil Rights Act, you still saw some signs, you know, colored, white, uh, and you know, that 
just like a really a, a, a shocker. So, but you know, those things you you always uh, remember, and uh, it was just such a, a contrast. It, you know, two months later, at the end of summer, uh, coming back home to South Bend for school, and then you realize whatever issues we had in South Bend or in Indiana, period, they were nothing compared to the issues they had down here at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, down, down here in the South. Right. Wow. Okay. Um, so after high school, what did you do next? Uh, I, well, I completed that summer at the Notre Dame Upper Bound Program because I was in the Upper Bound Program. Are you familiar with Upper Bound? No, what is that? Well, anyway, Upper Bound is a national program that's funded by the federal government where they work with several colleges uh, to have basically summer programs of about six, at the time it was six weeks, uh, where they would take kids from economically disadvantaged backgrounds and they would spend time on different colleges. And since I lived in South Bend, it was ordained that had the program. And they would basically give you summer classes and summer activities to you know, keep you out of trouble, keep you out on campus for six uh, six weeks. And part of it was preparing you to be on a college campus and to you know, have that experience and see how college college uh, lifestyle um, college lifestyles were. Anyway, and so. At the end, or after you graduate from high school, then that summer, you get credit for the classes you took. And so I had two classes at Notre Dame, two summer classes in Upper Bound, one math and one English. And of course, if you were successful, then those credits transferred. So that's what I did the summer of 81. And then I matriculated to uh, Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana in uh, August of 1981. Okay. That's where I did my undergrad. Okay. And uh, what were your goals after graduation? Uh, to attend law school and to get involved in, in politics. That's what actually I put in my high school yearbook become Indiana's first black senator. <laughs> and I still, I don't well, when I go back to reunion, folks remind me of that and show me the yearbook. I don't still have the yearbook, but yeah, wow. Um, so, where'd you go to law school then? I uh, went to law school at University University of Missouri, Columbia. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I was I enrolled in law school in August of uh, 1985. Okay, and then graduated, of course, in '88. And um, in what ways did your awareness of politics change when you were in college and in law school? Uh, in college at Wabash, I was very involved in debate. And that's when I clearly realized that I was a, a Democrat uh, at heart because Wabash, we had a very um, sharp group of a young Republican. Wabash is a, if you're not familiar with this, an all-male school. Okay. And and so we spent lots of time in debate and you know, the whole kind of, you know, Socrates 
Aristotle debates and it was just constant and and I realized every position I ended up taking uh, ended up being on the Democratic side of it uh, as opposed to the Republican. So, um, so I was a, you know, on our Democratic debate team and, and, and I realized then how your uh, views really kind of, you know, corner you. And America was not nearly as divided then, of course, um, 40 years ago as it is today. But it really kind of cornered you to take a position on certain things that were you know, democratic policies, just like on the opposite hand. Uh, my good friends that were Republicans, they took views that still were kind of in the, that defined them as Republicans. Yeah. So then when I got to law school, I think it was, oh, I'm sorry, then in college I was involved also. We were involved in our former civil rights movement because we, you know, we did march, and I went to D.C. Uh, for a, I spent a semester at American University in 1984, and that was when I tried my best to get arrested because we marched on the South African embassy every day mm. and uh, to end apartheid and free Mandela. And so we did it, but they refused to arrest us because they had arrest folks the year before and they knew all the attention they got when you arrest the college students. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I tried my best, but I was uh, never um, arrested, which turned out good because I would have explained that on law school admissions. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but um, but I, was, I was, again, very involved in undergrad and in law school and different uh, forms uh, from our perspective men of civil disobedience to try to help make change that we thought was necessary and then of course Mandela ended up being released after I got out of law school yeah I forget 1990 1991 something like that okay um, and so uh, describe your employment history after law school um after law school, I went immediately into, I came back to South Bend, Indiana, and immediately went into the private practice of law. And I, when I was in law school, and prior to law school, I had always wanted to be a defense lawyer, and specifically a public defender, because in my view then, that was the kind of highest calling you could have as a lawyer was defending uh, those who could not afford to defend themselves, and uh, particularly African-American uh, males who may have had uh, defense lawyers that didn't understand them, so they didn't necessarily put in all the additional time talking to them. And, and a lot of times, just through the conversations, you're able to... Um, you know, get information that can help in their defense. Yeah. So, uh, so when I start practicing, I was in private practice, and I started looking immediately for an opportunity to, in Indiana or in South Bend at least, lead public defenders for part-time positions. And so I think after my, my first year, at the end of my first year, I was able to, something happened. It was just real fortunate. I was able to get a position as a part-time public defender, 
and representing misdemeanor court. And, and I love the job more than even today, uh, almost more than any I've ever had because I got a chance to, particularly misdemeanor court, deal with probably 90% of the defendants were young black boys. But what I also found then was when you talk to them, uh, 90%, 80 or 90% didn't have a dad, mm, or didn't okay. have an uncle, or didn't have any male role model figure in their life. And they, you know, and you were kind of stunned, even though, again, I grew up black and poor, but again, I had a, you know, a dad and I had uh, teacher role models. But you were, you were stunned just to hear uh, their stories and how, a lot of times they hadn't you know, been told basic things like, hey, you just work hard, you stay out of trouble, you avoid the stumbling blocks to success, you can be successful. And how opportunities were you know, far different than whatever they grew up hearing about their parents or their grandparents. And so I was spent a lot of time just giving that message and, and I really uh, enjoyed that um, Five, six years I got to serve, I think, as a deputy public defender mm. while running a private practice. So, uh, but anyway, so I, so I started as a basically a deputy public defender, and I think it was 1990 through 96, I believe. Uh, and so, so employment history, I, I ran a private practice of law at the same time. Uh, from 1989, and then became public defender, still ran a private practice. I did a little bit of everything as a general practice, and so whoever knocked on the door, so I did everything from you know, bankruptcy to family law to um, you know, criminal law, it really just whoever came at the time. So in 19... Well, okay, well, I guess, yeah, I was employed by city council. In 1991, I got elected to the city council, to the South Bend City Council. So I served as a district, I was a district councilman from 1991 to 95. I represented the second district in the city of South Bend. Then in 95, I gave up the district seat and ran for city council at large, or citywide. I was fortunate enough to barely win. Then I served as a city councilman for one year. And in 1996, uh, to my surprise, our state senator decided not to run again. And so I ran in a three or four person primary for state senate in 1996. I was unfortunate to uh, pull it off. And so, I, during the time I was in the Senate, I still ran a law office, but had very little time because I was back and forth to Indianapolis. I got just involved with a lot of other issues, in part because of my background as a lawyer and understanding civil rights. And there were so few uh, African-American lawyers in the legislature. And I don't recall, it may have been well, there was at least one other. Maybe there were two. 
But so I got pulled in to assist on a lot of uh, legislation, just giving a legal opinion or reading something or writing talking points. Uh, and so uh, it gave me very little time to run back and forth to South Bend to practice law. And I lost uh, a lot of uh, money and probably most of my clientele during that uh, four years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Then in 2000, when I did not seek re-election, and that's when I came in the private sector to work for AT&T. Yeah, okay. Um, let's see. And uh, when, if at all, did you get married? Uh, we got married in 2004 in October. Okay. And... We have, uh, my wife's name is Marla Washington. Uh, well, it's Marla Jones, but we have uh, two children, uh, Cleo George Washington II, and he is 16, getting ready to turn 17. He is a uh, junior in high school here at Lamp High School. And then my other son, uh, Carson Kennedy Washington, and Carson just turned 15 last month in April, and he is a freshman in high school. And so I'm a I'm an older dad than most of the other dads. So okay, I'm, uh, 61 years old with getting ready to have a 17 year old and a and a uh, a 15 year old. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> unusual <laughs> yeah, but you know I had to do the political stuff first and of course uh, you grew up in a large family there's a lot of folks that you have to help and you can't always start uh, a family at a young age like other folks so. sure yeah makes sense um and so you, you kind of did a brief summary of, of how you got involved in politics. Um, you know, did you have any national political heroes or state or local political heroes when you were, uh, you know, started running for office? Oh, yes. Uh, I think probably when I first started, uh, my biggest probably was Jesse Jackson, because at the time, uh, I'm sorry. No worries. Uh, I, I worked as a college student in 1984 when Jesse ran uh, for office. I worked on his uh, campaign. And then when he ran in 1988, uh, while I was at law school, uh, I worked on his campaign that time also. So he was a big, uh, I was a huge fan of his, and in part because to me at the time, he kind of maintained the legacy of Dr. King more than anyone else. And, uh, but outside of that, uh, yeah, there were a lot of you know, individual members of you know, Congress that I had admired, uh, you know, doing their service. Uh, Shirley Holmes, we, we, of course, at that time, uh, oh, I'm saying, of course, I may be wrong on this. But when did Julia Carson get elected? I forget. So if she was in Congress then, I don't recall. She may have gotten the, uh, 
yeah, just members of uh, members of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus. I was kind of they were like heroes to me. Yeah. And then we had two uh, white congressmen from Indiana that were my big hero. One was John Bradamus, who was our congressman from South Bend. But he was a big supporter of the Upper Bound program and TRIO programs. And another was uh, Birch Bai, who was our U.S. senator uh, at the same time when I was in high school. And um, he came out to Notre Dame, I remember, when I was in Upper Bound program. And he was, I was a big fan of his. And, but even in high school, as I look back now, college, I was, you know, followed the civil rights movement a lot, and I kind of uh, envisioned that that was part of my role, and I looked at, you have the largest impact on the largest number of folks, so I had hoped to run for Congress, and then, uh, of course, once I got elected to the state senate, uh, then I ran two years later, the party asked me and I ran for statewide office in 1998 for uh, treasurer. And I was unsuccessful there, but it was a great experience getting a chance to travel across the state. I think I, and I may be wrong, I think I got 42, 42%, 43% of the vote, which uh, looking back, considering I raised very little money, it was a, a, a good amount. And Nice, nice, nice experience. Yeah, sounds like it. Okay. Um, so, uh, when you were running for office, did you have a particular campaign strategy? Uh, when I ran for state, well, which right. any of the offices? Uh, the General yeah. Assembly. Oh yeah, when I when I ran for state senate, uh, my strategy was simply to. Um, at that point, say how I was the most experienced candidate because I had been a city councilman and as a lawyer, I understood the law and understood how to apply it and I would be best positioned to help uh, bring back uh, dollars to South Bend and work in partnership with our house colleagues. At the time, uh, B. Patrick Bauer was the state rep from South Bend. He was Speaker of the House. And and, and when I ran in 19, I'm sorry, in uh, 1996, and that uh, Patrick Bauer was also a former teacher of mine. And so you know, he helped inspire a lot of folks to get involved in government and be engaged in public policy. So all that was uh, part of my uh, argument that I'll be once I became a senator, have someone to work in partnership with and get more done for Northern Indiana and South Bend specifically. Yeah. Okay. And I, I had I don't again then since I have to go find materials as. Uh, was it 25 years ago, 1996 or 27 years ago? Um, I had 
I don't remember all my specific platform issues, but sure. I had one for education and one for economic development and one for healthcare and one for ensuring everyone had the access to both. So those are kind of the four general things. As I recall from 1996 that I talked about, now I wasn't the only one talking about those things. And I think within, if you look particularly at um, uh, African-American uh, candidates that were running then and still, uh, to an extent, uh, running today, uh, those issues always come up because of the um, how how few, I remember this statistic, how few African-Americans, I think, the Civil Rights Act passed and the Voting Rights Act passed in 1970, and I forget the organization that did the study. It was after the Watts riots. Maybe the Kernan Commission report. Maybe that's what it's called. Okay. But in any event, they did a report and whatever the predecessor agency to the Pew Center. Uh, but what it showed, I uh, remember this, it was stunning. In 1970, only 5% of African Americans had a four year college degree. And so it was a huge disparity that everyone that was involved in politics or civil rights, they were aware. And the question was, you know, how did you close a disparity? Whereas 50 years later, in 2020, that 5% was up to 25%. And so it's hard for anyone to argue um, and, well, that, that there's a real education disparity, college education disparity today because everyone um, is available to everyone. Some people may have to incur more debt or have more obstacles, but you cannot say that everyone doesn't have an opportunity to get a college education today. Uh, right. there, there are not all those structural barriers that existed 50 years ago. Sure. Okay. Um now, did you do any, like, door-to-door -door, uh, campaigning as well? Yes, yes, I did. Uh, that, that actually, you know, I don't remember how much I, I remember for the state treasurer race. Uh, in 98, I raised barely over 100000 again, which was, uh, which was small for a statewide race. For the state senate race, oh, man, I don't, I don't, I'm sure I didn't raise $20,000, so I did. Most of our campaigning was door to door, was you know literally knocking on doors throughout. Because I represented South Bend, and I think it was in the District Ten. I'm not sure now. You know, a long time, but I was able to go uh, throughout South Bend, and maybe Osceola was part of my district too. Okay, but everywhere, every the entire district, I went and went. You know, door to door, but I had the energy and the time too. Because on the side, I was just you know, practicing law, so I was able. To, and I thought I had to outwork my opponents because um, we we had had one African American state senator before uh, me, but that had been a couple of decades uh, earlier, maybe three decades earlier. A guy named Jesse Dick. Yes, since we're doing this history, you. Uh, Jesse Dickinson. Okay. Yeah, and I think, and I forget, I think he had been elected in the 60s. 
So my middle school was named after him, Jesse Dickinson, yeah, Jesse Dickinson Middle School. And so, but yes, I did a lot of door-to-door. You know, I did a few first yard signs. I had tons of volunteers that were helping me. Uh, and I had way more folks that had time to volunteer than had money to contribute. Yeah, okay. Uh, what did you think of the election process in general? It 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 was it was uh, it, in general it was fair, but you know there was a little dirty politicking going on okay. uh, during the election because uh, by one of my opponents uh, saying some uh, anyway saying some uh, inappropriate things. The people I represented, because again, I did uh, as a defense lawyer, you represent whoever come in the door, and as a public defender, you represent whoever you're assigned to. Mm, okay. So that became an issue for probably a small percent of constituents. Uh, we did; it was a close election, and very few people expected me to win, uh, but I won. I forget, barely over the number for a recount. I, I, I had, or maybe it was, a, maybe one of my opponents filed for a recount. I think they did. Yeah, I, I did have to go to a meeting at the Secretary of State's office. Sue, I forget her name now. Not Sue Ellen. Oh, Sue Ann Gilroy, I think. I think that was her name, Sue Ann Gilroy. I think she was in there as Secretary of State then in 1996. But I had to uh, go for some type of hearing, and I believe, uh, hard to remember, but I believe it was one of my opponents uh, asked for a recount and alleged something else. Uh, all the ballots, I, I, don't, I don't remember the details of it. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, now, what was your reaction when you found out that you won the election? Oh, I was thrilled and sad at the same time because my, my father died in August. Oh, I, no. My father was still living in May of 1996 when I won the primary, so okay. he was thrilled to death that he had been sick, and then he finally succumbed uh, August 13th. 1996, and so celebration night in November uh, was kind of a mixed emotions. On one hand, we were thrilled God had blessed with the opportunity to uh, serve in the entire Senate district as opposed to uh, first election in 91. It was a district seat. Then in 95, it was citywide, but now even a bigger district. The states in the district, and so, uh, but again, it was, um, you know, just very uh, mixed emotions. I still remember the night and the music we were playing, celebrating at our um, our watch party, I guess, at the South Bend Marriott Hotel in downtown. So yeah. Okay. Um, 
What were you thinking when you walked into the state house for your first day in office? I was thinking what committees would I be assigned to and whether I would have sufficient time to learn the process so that I could be effective immediately. I wanted to uh, get the Senate running because it was you know, November and we started session uh, in January. So I had to spend a lot of time after I got elected just learning the the process so that no one would have the ability to manipulate or pull it or anything over my eyes. Yeah. Was it uh, more or less complicated than you expected? Oh, more. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> far, far more so than the city council. Yeah. Because we had so many, well, everything around state legislature is kind of law. You know, you have, and I forget the name, here, here in Alabama, it's called Legislative Services Agency. Yeah. And since I've been down here, since uh, I relocated here in 08, I forget the name of the agencies in Indiana. But the agency that drafted the bills for you, you know, they had a lot of lawyers in their office and the ones that did the fiscal notes, the fiscal analysis, they, you know, had some lawyers in their office. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I would say far more complicated but it was everything that I understood. I just had, because a lot of it was legal stuff. So I, then I feel just very extremely fortunate to have a legal background once I got to the legislature. And you had a lot of very sharp, uh, I can't remember all their names, lawyers on the other side. Yeah, Senator Bray, who was chairman of the judiciary. I was on the judiciary. Senator Murray Clark. Senator David Long ended up being one of my best buddies and my tennis partner. Um, Senator Weiss and Senator Bob Garden, who was the majority uh, or the pro team, he ended up being one of my really, really good partners. Uh, and, um, and we had a, a smaller, when I got elected, it was 30, 20, 30. I recall correctly, 30 Republicans and 20 Democrats. So the Democrats really stuck together, though, in order to be effective. And whenever we were able to get, you know, four or five Republicans to go with us on an issue, we could get it passed. Yeah. But, um, uh, but yeah, very far, far more complicated than uh, my role as a a city councilman. Sure. but I was able to very quickly learn the process. And the, oh, Senator Bob Hellman. I'm sorry, I'm just having flashbacks. He was no, a, no worries. He was, uh, he was a Democrat from Terre Haute. He passed a few years ago, but a very sharp lawyer. He may have been the leader. And then Senator, I think, I'm not sure, my first or second year, Senator Tim Lannan got elected from Anderson. And he may... Yeah, and I think he served as majority after I left. He ended up being minority leader. Um, Senator Vi Simpson, yeah. She was a lawyer, too, I believe, if I recall. Yeah. So once I got to the Senate on the Democratic side, yeah, we, we had, yeah, I don't know, five. Oh, Senator Bill Alexa. <laughs> she was all coming. Says I, you know, because I haven't talked to a lot of these people in 20 well, since I left Alabama in 
And sure. Since I left for Alabama in 08, that's why, uh, <laughs> uh, as I'm thinking now, we yeah. have some really sharp lawyers. Yeah, Bill Alexa, Senator Hellman. I don't remember Hellman's first name. He was from Terre Haute. Uh, Senator Tim Lanner from Anderson. Senator Lonnie Randolph from East Chicago. And I think he's back in the legislature now. Um, okay, yeah. And uh, and now and I remember the major the minority leader. He was Senator Richard Young, Richard Young from Southern Indiana. Uh, I don't know what part, but I just remember his name. And Senator Billy Bro from Indianapolis, and her daughter is now a state senator, Jean uh, Bro. Uh, but you know, we we had a we had a really good uh, group. Yeah, we really did, and they were really uh, effective. But it was very, as I recall, and I don't, if I don't, if I can't say very bipartisan, we had very good relationships. Right? There was no. I remember very few. I can't remember any, but I'm sure we had some. But very few kind of nasty battles like a lot a lot of state legislatures have today where it's name calling. I don't you know what I'm saying I don't remember that, but if you go pull some tapes, I may have been involved in some of it. I just again after twenty seven years I don't Yeah. But the, my recollection was you know, great very good relationships. Sure. Okay. Um how did you keep track of the needs and wants of your constituents? I had a detailed, um, and, and I could go back and find the calendars, because I still do do the handling my process pretty much well, similar today as a as a lobbyist, which was I had a I had a I have these big thick, and I've been using them the last mm-hmm, thirty years, yeah, because I'm sure I have one back to 1994. I remember anyway a big thick calendar where it says like, you know, calendar at a glance or year at a glance. And then it always had four lines on each page and, and on each page of my calendar. Yeah. I'll be interested to see if I can find this. Anyway, <laughs> each page of the calendar, I would have constituent needs. And then, uh, cause I would get so many calls and I think in part, uh, I think in part, I mean, Asked them, I got disproportionate number of, of African Americans that called because they were just so proud to have a black state senator. Sure. And I, and I was in the news all the time. And, you know, when I ended up on, I remember nightly news with Tom Brokaw, then um, talking about the Clinton impeachment because we had an impeachment going on of a state senator in Indiana at the same time. And when I, I was appointed chairman of the Ethics Commission, and everyone wondered how did I, as um, or the Ethics Committee, to investigate. But we were, the Democrats were in the minority, but I got appointed. And I think it was because I was, uh, not because I was more fair than anyone, mm, okay. but because uh, I was a lawyer and I understood the process. And the Republican lawyers on the committee were kind of, I think torn. Some wanted to get rid of him, and some were with me. Where my position from day one was, it was a voter's decision. 
there was a you know moral failing issue and they they were comparing uh, what happened and the reason I was on nightly news with Tom Brokaw they did a start comparing how uh, Indiana had a similar issue with the state senator and how we handled it as opposed to how the federal government was handling it and the millions of dollars they were spending on the investigation can't stop investigating President Clinton. So, uh, but again, we had you know, good, and I think my appointment was an example of how, in that sense, we were very bipartisan. Yeah. Let's see. Um, so, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what were the general interactions like between Democrats and Republicans when you served? You know, then there were probably some acrimony, but for some reason, I only remember the good. I, I uh, we had, and again, you can go back and find this. Outside, I may be wrong, but they controlled sixty forty. So, it my recollection, I may be totally wrong on this, was that we got we had you know, 40% chance of getting our bills heard. And that was great, right? Because they, in fact, they had the majority. They could have um, dominated us and ran us over and everything, but they didn't. And I always attributed part of it to the leadership, particularly the pro Tim uh, Bob Garden. And, you know, again, we had some fights on some issues, but not like they have the voting rights restrictions today. We didn't have those, or, or there were bills to try to put those restrictions in place then. We fought them, and I don't remember many bad things yeah. being passed. Uh, I, I recall, and I always remember this the rest of my life, because it, it was my first bill, and it was the most important one. And I didn't think we would be able to pass it, but April 29th of 1997, I got elected to the Senate in November of 96, and in Indiana, we took office the next day. Um, but then anyway, we had another ceremony, where in January, I think. But um, I had a bill, and it's still law of the day, called the Indiana Clio. I was a, the Senate sponsor, Indiana Clio bill. And it was a um, Chief Justice, Randall Shepard, all of us had a similar idea. And I forget who were the House sponsors, but the Chief Justice deserves a lot of credit for it. He wanted to help diversify the bar in Indiana. And um, so... He took an idea that uh, I had, because I had been part of a federal program to diversify the bar called the the Clio program. <laughs> and the Clio program was, and it's still in existence today, Council on Legal Education Opportunity that was started in 1968 at the Summer uh, Harvard Law Institute. And the purpose was similar to the Upper Bound program I told you about that I was involved in high school from summers of 1978 to uh, 1981 to help prepare uh, low-income minority students for college. 
the CLIO program help prepare students from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds for law school. So anyway, so I was I was involved in that summer program the summer after I graduated from Wabash, the summer of 1985, and that was at uh, University of Iowa School of Law. And again, a four to six week program. So my number one idea, uh, and at the time, when I got elected to the Senate in 96, I think Indiana may have had either two or three percent of the lawyers were African-American. They probably haven't made significant improvements since then. I'm not sure that'd be easy to look up. Or, or maybe it's, it's three or maybe it's four percent today, so maybe it has been significant. But in any event, so the Indiana, the Indiana Clio bill would do would set up a summer program and allow for basically the same thing as the national Clio did, which was um, uh, a summer five six week program where you studying together. You had law professors that taught it and it kind of simulated law school in order to prepare you. And if you were successfully completing you become a Clio fellow and receive a stipend. And then when you start law school, you have less financial struggle and you have some some of the similar, similar exposure that other students had. So April 29th of 1997, it was one of many bills. I, was a, I assume it's still the same. Yeah, I think it's by constitution in Indiana. That's the night, or that's the day the legislature ends, April 20, April 29th. And, and I remember this, and I may have the time off a little bit, but I would, uh, every hour of the day, I would either come to Senator Garden's office, or if we were on the floor, I would come up to Senator Garden and ask him, can you please call the Cleo Bill? Mm. Uh, and I forget the number, the, I said I don't have to forget that, but I have forgot the name, the number of the legislation. But anyway, but, but I literally had to go uh, almost pleading or begging Senator Garden to plead. And I knew I had to do that because there were also plenty of Republican bills that were good bills that were trying to pass. And obviously those were the, his biggest priority as president uh, pro tem of the Senate. You know, the Republican bills so that he was like some Democratic bills too. And then I was every hour, literally, I would come say something, Senator Gardner, you can call. And then if I remember right, and again, you go back and find the legislation, uh, I think it was 11.43 p.m., 17 minutes before the gavel closed, before Sine died, I went and then he allowed me to call Cleo called a Cleo bill and I got up and presented it really quickly because everyone was familiar with it because you know I had went and talked to every senator about it and I was surprised I was able to you know all the uh, Republican senators even if they were far right I, there may have been a couple votes against it but most of them they still understood the need to diversify the bar and I said it was beautiful for Indiana and wants to pass it other states would adopt it. And the reason we needed it was when Gingrich and the Republicans took control of Congress in 1994 uh, with a contract with America, 
I think that was the name of it. And I had been involved in the in the Clio, the summer program in 1985, right? And then so nine years later, when they Clio was one of the programs that they either defunded or dramatically cut. And so that's what I kind of figured was the state's responsibility to pick it up. And so Indiana was the first state to adopt a Clio program. Wow, okay. So, yeah, so that's why I always remember the date. And I think I at the time, right? I think it was 11.43 p.m. And when you find legislation, they say 11.23 p.m., but I think 11.43. But anyway, back and forth, back and forth, instead of guarding and, and that's why I always respect him tremendously because he didn't have to call it because uh, he legitimately could say, hey, I got Senator Kenley and Senator, I don't remember all the different Republican senators, but all of them had bills waiting. And that happens every year. It's way more bills filed than you have time to get to. And how do you prioritize? And he prioritized the importance of diversity of the bar, or he made it a priority by calling allowed me to call the bill, and the bill was uh, passed, and then you know went over to the House for concurrence, and of course uh, Justice Shepard then uh, started the program. The program's still around today, India, and it's one of the best programs anywhere, and it has provided opportunities for uh, 27 years. I think they had mm, 60, no, 30 kids a year, so whatever that number uh, is hundreds of uh, students to become lawyers in Indiana that otherwise may not have, but for the Clio program. So that was my, and that's one of the few bills I remember a lot of details about uh, because I had to fight so hard for it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Jeez. Um, see, what would you say were the differences between the House and Senate? I think the difference, at least for me, was constituent services. Because even though I got several calls, um, the House members of my district got a lot more calls. And I remember that. I said, wow. And, and then I realized in my second year that it was because a lot of folks, because you had the title of senator, at least a lot of folks from South Bend, they thought I was in D.C., not <laughs> Indianapolis. Okay, yeah. And so I would get a lot less calls, and I'm running people when I'm home, but they're like, well, hey, Senator, I, I want to call you, but I know, you know how busy you all are in D.C., and I you know, I, I hear about it on television sometimes, so I didn't call you, and I would just listen. I didn't say, uh, <laughs> or, well, a few times I was speaking to actually, I mean, Indianapolis, he would call, but... <laughs> and I realized that that was a general perception of a lot of people that don't follow, follow politics every day. Right? Sure. And yeah. they just know you have the title senator now, and they assumed I was in D.C. And so uh, it was, uh, so, so that was a big difference. Outside of that, you just, of course, had, from my perspective, more leverage because there were less of you. It was... Of fifty senators and uh, you get a hundred house members, so um, that was uh, yeah. I can't, and nothing else says oh, no as far as what I saw is the difference. Other than I'm sorry, 
in the House, you ran every two years, and in the Senate, every four. And that was a biggie, because I would have been, I would have hated to be in the House and had to turn around and try to raise funds for folks every two years. Yeah, okay. Um, how influential were uh, lobbyists in the Indiana General Assembly? Uh, they were very influential, and I think they still should be. Okay. Uh, and the reason is, a good lobbyist is simply an educator. And the best lobbyists, they're willing to give you their side while they're advocating uh, on behalf of a bill and the other side. Um, and, and I think that's, I don't see how legislatures could survive without a bunch of good lobbyists because, and what I found this out when I was a senator too, and I forget the number, but say it was you know, 800 bills filed my first year. Well, I was a, a lawyer, a pretty good reader. Uh, pretty good comprehension, pretty fast reader, and I still didn't have a, have the time to read a third of the bills I was voting on, and so I had to rely very heavily on uh, kind of three groups. One was lobbyists. Uh, second uh, were uh, associations, and the third, which again is in theory most important, your constituents. But if it's not a particular issue they're following, if we don't have time and we have, um, you know, we're reading the bills and reading the fiscal notes and access to lobbyists to explain the bill to us, what's the purpose of the bill, and we have administrative assistance or executive assistance or whatever they're titled to, help kind of prep the bill for you. These are the main things that you need to be looking for. It's a 50-page bill, and hey, the real language you're looking for that would change the laws on page 34 to 37. And so uh, I, I think lobbyists are uh, invaluable to the process. With that said, with that said, uh, I may have an inherent bias also because here, in Alabama, I served as our lobbyist. Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, did you? How did you know when you were serving in the Indiana General Assembly whether to trust a lobbyist or not? Uh, good question. I think the, those that made time to build a relationship with you during the campaign, uh, prior to you winning the Senate seat, those were the ones that that were easiest to trust. Second, I think you relied on kind of the institutional knowledge of your uh, assistants, the you know, administrative assistants, legislative assistants that had been around a while, that they knew all the lobbyists, of course, and they could give you a lot of kind of side points as far as you know, who was who, what level of expertise they had, and whether they were trustworthy or not. Yeah. And um, and I think if you have a reputation being untrustworthy, that passes quickly. Okay, sure. Uh, and, and, you know, everyone's able to find that out and, you know, not to listen to them. 
there were very few circumstances like that. I, as I think back, uh, I can't right offhand think of any of those situations. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you think uh, things like campaign donations or gifts had much? influence on politicians when they were serving or didn't really make a difference? It makes, I think, a difference from um, one perspective and that is if, if they gave you a significant campaign contribution and you didn't raise a lot of money like me and then of course you remembered the ones that gave you say whatever my average campaign gift sure only raised ten thousand dollars was whatever two hundred or a hundred or two hundred and then you had someone give you two thousand you naturally take note of it and you take time to do the same thing you do with the hundred dollar gifts which is sitting up a little handwritten thank you note but with the two thousand of course it has such a huge impact in your ability to run a, your basic campaign yeah. To send out literature, to send out your talking points and your vision for the district and how you keep in contact. Um, I just you know, can't uh, recall what my uh, biggest, but yeah, so, so I think outside of that, I think campaign donations have very uh, little impact is expected and those that give they're allowed to participate in the democracy equally and you know rather get fifty dollars or five hundred dollars uh but i don't think for most legislators wherever you are north or south east or west it, it doesn't play a, a big role but a lot of critics that will say well you get greater access i would disagree greater access I would say yes there's greater awareness of who you are because of the size of the contribution yeah okay um, now what would you change about the legislative process based on your experiences uh, hmm um I will find a way to provide more uh, funding for constituent services. And the reason is you inevitably go return home and you will hear from different constituents that, hey, I heard you voted you know, for or against this. I wish I had known about it. And then I, was, I would say something like, I don't know, that, you know, we send, and I don't remember uh, then what, it, what did they provide then, whether it was, you know, once a session or twice a session, you could do a mailing, uh, whatever the state provided. That was, yeah, actually, as I look back, that was probably one of my biggest complaints. I, I thought they should have provided more, but it was a, it was you know an incredible expense for the state then. Then that was the beginning of email, so everything was still going out print. Yeah. 
Now, so I would imagine, yeah, so that's probably dramatically different today. Yeah, yeah, because think of it, because if you hear from any constituent, you could simply you know, have something set up where you email them your standard kind of weekly update. This is week five of the legislature. we got seven more to go, and this is the status of the budget. But from my time there, that was kind of the biggest problem I had was constantly thinking through how do you make certain your constituents are aware of what issues uh, you're dealing with and how these issues that you're voting for against may impact their day-to-day lives. Yeah. So um, outside of that, let me think. Uh, Anything else that I would change? Uh, I I can't think of anything else now. There, There was a... I really enjoyed my uh, time in the legislature. I hated the league, so um, very few complaints. Sure. Okay. Um, what were the most controversial legislative issues when you served? Ben, uh, the problem I have answering that is uh, <laughs> I've lived with so many issues. Down here, and again, I left office in 2000. I got elected at a young age, right? Yeah. Of uh, 35, and I only served four years. So it's, it's actually, again, other than the Clio legislation I mentioned, I can't even remember the name of that bill uh, because, you know, I two years later became a lobbyist and. and So for the last 20 years, I've been lobbying. I've dealt with so many bills on both sides. It's hard for me to, let me me think, Uh, remember, because we follow. Yeah, no worries. No. um, Right now, I literally can't. I'm sure it's probably something, you know, again, like education funding. I know we always had a fight on that, how much money. Yeah, and I don't remember. Again, there was like proposals to give monies to, I'm not sure if they were called charter schools or choice schools. And as Democrats, uh, we always had a, um, a policy position to fight those because every uh, dollar um, given took away money from the education budget. Uh, you know, we had economic development uh, issues we constantly fight for. Oh, I do remember this. I don't know what happened with it. We had a uh, the Dem- Democratic caucus fought for a, a minority, what do you call the program? It provide more opportunities, for example, for Minorities in construction and um, what is it called? Like a five percent carve out. I, I forget the, the right to the name. It is uh, a five percent. It may it may be set aside. It may not be set aside. But I remember our argument was at the time 
Indiana had a popular African American population, I think of nine percent, and then maybe others was two percent, which were, you know, ninety percent African Americans that had a white mother and a black father, but they've been raised by their white mother and they didn't want to give up her identity, so they listed themselves as other. So Indiana basically had ten percent African American population, maybe similar today. Then, of course, you had a smaller Latino population than Indiana probably has today and a smaller um, Asian population. But in any event, we would argue that if it's 10%, uh, then then the proposed uh, set-aside should be like 5% of all the the contracts that are paid for by uh, public dollars should go to minorities. And so that would be hard to argue that that's unfair if the population 10% is saying, well, if you have qualified vendors that 5% is still 5% of the 100% of dollars that are being allocated. And so, and I'm sure there's probably plenty of legislation that seems seems as if I remember a lot of debates on that. Okay. And I, I can't remember you know, all the details. There was a Supreme Court decision on it, I think. Yeah, okay, no problem. Um, let's see, looking at, uh, thinking of some sort of going through the newspapers, I came across some things that seemed to pop up when you were serving in the General Assembly. Uh, do you remember anything about like a hate crime bill? Oh. Yeah, I totally forgot about that because it's been so long. Okay. Right, right. There were, uh, oh, darn it. And I remember speaking on hate crime bill several times and writing an editorial for Wabash College. Ah, darn it. Hold up. Now, just a second, Dana. No worries. Maybe you confuse hate crime and death penalty. I remember uh, I had to be a... I think, yeah, the, the, the death penalty one was like helping people on death row or something like that. Right, and trying to eliminate the death penalty. And, and yeah, and at the time I had the only bill, that's right, of all the state legislatures in the U.S., about 50, I had the only bill that, oh, Senator Meeks, ah, oh, boy, ah, and I haven't used his name in 20 years. That's <laughs> right, we, we, we had a bill uh, to change Indiana's law to take away the death penalty. I'm going to get back to hate crimes in a second. But I remember that down as Senator Meeks was the chairman of the committee. Again, he was a Republican, and he allowed me to have a hearing on it. Of course, he knew he had the votes to defeat it, but that was big in Indiana to even have a hearing allowed for a public hearing on whereas advocates on my side that thought the implementation was unfair um, and who actually got executed is disproportionately uh, black men. But the fact that we had an Indiana hearing on it, that was big time. It made big news. And um, and again, they, Indiana still maintained uh, the death penalty and hate crimes. <sighs> I just remember having being involved in those debates all the time. I don't remember what the specific issue was other than 
maybe Indiana was one of the states that didn't recognize, um, you know, some crimes as as a hate crime. Okay. And if I if I recall, we were trying to under the law make it easier to define certain things as hate crimes. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I guess the the other thing I saw pop up was about. Um, I think you and some other legislators were talking about, uh, I guess, the, you know, having to, and I think you might have touched upon this uh, very briefly, but like one of the challenges of being a legislator um, is, is sort of like the, the lack of benefits that you may give up when becoming one, and it's hard on your families or something like that, uh, since you have to be away from your business and... Yeah, and I remember when I remember having a lot of discussion about that when I announced in March of 2000 I would not be seeking re-election. But part of it was family. Part of it was you know, the economic impact. the The part that was uh, that was family was uh, I. Uh, it was a stressful four years I had. Uh, two of my brothers uh, in and out of uh, jail and then I had a couple of nephews in and out of uh, jail and so that was you know very stressful for my um, my mother then uh, wow as I look back it was a busy four years okay I elected in 96 I ran for state treasurer in 98 and then I was a finalist for the Supreme Court opening the next year in 1999. And if I recall, maybe 40 folks that applied and five or six of us were selected as finalists. And I thought at the time um, I would be selected and that you know, I both had the combination of great experience having done civil law and being a public defender and being in private practice and being a city councilman. I thought I was, uh, I would be the clear favorite. And then uh, my brother uh, was arrested and charged with murder. Oh, okay. And so the, the news media in South Bend uh, wanted me to comment, and I refused to comment because it was a no-win situation. I couldn't say. Yeah. I believe my brother was innocent, and I couldn't because of the the victim's family, and I I couldn't say. Well, I believe my brother may be guilty. In any event, and and. I think, if I remember correctly, uh, and there were articles on this, but right after I was named as a finalist, then the he was charged with murder within the next, I don't know, a week or two. And so prior to the hearing for the finalists is when I had to deal with the media questions, which I avoided. That was the only time I literally, because I was quick to comment on everything, uh, but that was the only time I avoided because I just didn't. It, I was. It was like one of the biggest, you know, predicaments.
artists I had to ever deal with. And my mother was interviewed, I remember, by the Tribune, um, the South End Tribune. And she was, you know, speaking out on it. And I thought it was a huge mistake, but I couldn't say anything because yeah. it was a no-win. Sure. And so I ended up withdrawing. Um, and I remember there's an article that, you know, Washington withdraws from uh, without comment. And, you know, so then some people thought that didn't know my brother was had been charged with murder and the stress that was causing my mother. And that's right. Then they did a big article. That's right. Yeah. Where it showed a picture of both of us on the front page of the Tribune. I remember it now. And... Uh, and my mother commenting in the article. But the problem I had was I couldn't have any comment. And so I withdrew. And then there were back-to-back articles, like within two months, you know, Washington withdraws as finals of the Supreme Court. And then the next article, you know, a month or two later, was Washington not to seek uh, re-election to the Senate. And that was because my mother, I saw like the end of 99, that my mother was in the process of dying. Uh, she uh, she had um, a heart problem. She had several, and many heart attacks. And as she was in the process of dying, she asked me in, um, you know, late 99, uh, uh, upon her death, whether I would be willing to take care of my nephews, who she had custody of, uh, one of my sisters who was uh, in and out of problems, and my mother had custody of her son. And it was the toughest decision at that time I ever had to make, because I told my mother I really felt it was God's will for me to be in the legislature, and I literally loved being a senator and having the opportunity to represent so many people and have a say on public policy issues that not only impacted my district in Indiana, but were nationwide issues. And they were, yeah, now, again, some of this come back. They were hate crimes. It was a death penalty because of the Supreme Court decision. It was voting rights. It was you know, economic opportunities through, for uh, African-American businesses. All those things that we deal with at the state level were actually federal issues. And now you know, it's coming back more and more as a big case out of Richmond. Uh, Rich, Richmond uh, about, um, and, and affirmative action, of course. Wow, yes. So in any event, all the uh, state issues were becoming, uh, all that had been federal issues, the states were having a say on it. And all those I enjoyed being involved. But um, because of the combination of uh, my brother's uh, murder case, along with um, my mother asked me to take custody of my nephews. And so I announced yep, the first week of March, um, March 2nd or something like that, that I wouldn't, be re- I wouldn't seek re-election to the Senate. And I remember that being a very emotional day. Uh, but I was going to honor my mother's wishes and then when we left session that March of 2000, then my mother literally died like a week later. And I, of course, took custody of my 
my nephews and then you know, seek re-election in November. And then that's when I, it was, because uh, all this was in the news every day, well, every day in South Bend and some in Indianapolis because everyone was stunned because I've, again, been the Democratic nominee for state treasurer in 98. And then in, in 99, I was a, a finalist for Supreme Court. Now, why uh, was I leaving? And so, and I'm sure a lot of people at that time, they didn't know all the details, questioned, was he in trouble or something? No, I'm not in trouble. It's a family. And, you know, I knew what was a likely being a lawyer. I knew it was a likely end uh, result of, of his murder case. And he's, of course, you know, still in prison today. Okay. But anyway, but my mother couldn't, of course, deal with the stress. It was very stressful of her. And I didn't want to cause additional stress by saying, no, I'm staying in the Senate and, you know, preparing for an eventual federal office uh, run, so. Yeah, sure, okay. Um, now, so how would you summarize your time overall then as a state legislator? Oh, I, I, I loved it. I loved every day and every week. I loved going home. Uh, for constituents meetings. I love being involved with the issues we were doing at the state level, which were you know, federal issues too. Like I mentioned before, right, the, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the diversity study that was that were just becoming popular. But anyway, Indiana, we were leading the way on that. Um, oh, what is it called? Disparity study. Disparity study to prove, right, that there were uh, qualified African-American businesses that were not getting an opportunity. Yep. And it was a Richmond versus ProSign. It was based upon the ProSign case. In any event, all those issues we were dealing with, right, were issues, and to the extent they are today, were either like the Supreme Court had not weighed in or we had an opportunity as a state to pass legislation that would force the court to weigh in. So, but I enjoyed it tremendously, actually. I remember I was very emotional and uh, cried during my uh, goodbye speech. And then there were like 10 or 12 other legislators that got up, both Democrat and Republican. Actually, there were more Republicans got up than Democrats to say how they uh, hated that I had to leave under these circumstances. But uh, understood because all of us on the Democrat and Republican side had talked about the importance of family and it's easy to talk about the importance of family then when you're put in that situation where you actually have to choose to give up something that you love which I love being a senator because of a family issue my mother wanted me to uh, take custody of my nephews when she passed and uh, and I remember also saying on the floor, of course, I don't have it. I'm sure there's a recording of it somewhere. I'm sure I said this was, I didn't understand it, but apparently uh, God has better plans for me. I didn't understand it, but I'm trusting that by not uh, running in. Because had I ran again, of course, no one would have dared challenge me. Because, yeah. you know, at that point, I was probably the best known, I'm assuming, 
and probably the best known state senator uh, in the state on the Democratic side, I'm sure, having been the state a statewide candidate in 98 and the Supreme Court finalist in 99. Uh, and yet, only whenever I was 40 years old, I guess, turned it. Uh, something like that. Yeah, 39, 40, call it. Yeah, 22 years ago. Yeah, 39. So, anyway. Yeah, wow. Okay. Um, what lessons did you learn uh, from your experiences in the General Assembly? Uh, lessons is always uh, remember, even when you have excellent lobbyists, uh, consult and notify your constituents of the issues. First and foremost, even though the, the lobbyists get role work to educate you on the details of the issue, don't, to the extent anything that's going to be an important bill, notify your constituents, right? And again, we didn't have email then, or, or if we did have, it was the beginning of email uh, in 96. So again, sending notes, calling, doing radio interviews. I did then a lot of radio interviews. Hey, I want you all to know we're voting on this and this is the impact. Uh, whereas today it's just so much easier with social media uh, to communicate. But that was probably the number one lesson. The number two lesson, I would say, um, is to uh, prepare, prepare, prepare. Yeah, I think I told you about my calendar, how I would have a list for constituents on one of the four. And then on the, uh, the next list, I would have kind of a list of, uh, you know, bills that were uh, coming up. And then I would have like a cheat sheet next to it as far as any history I needed to know about it. And, and I remember my father told me, um, he told me something as a, before my first jury trial as a lawyer, and I used the same rule uh, when I got elected to the city council, when I got elected to the, uh, to the state senate, and that was, he told me, you know, this is back in 1989, uh, never uh, feel embarrassed if you go into the courtroom and have to argue your case with a lawyer who's intellectually superior to you. But feel ashamed and mortified if you ever go into the courtroom to argue a case with a lawyer who's better prepared than you. Mm, okay. Because you totally control preparation, your level of work ethic and diligence. And it was the same thing being when I got to the legislature, it's the exact same issue, right? Someone may have a lot of uh, expertise and knew an issue a lot better, but if you prepared, then you could know it equally as well. And and I remember, and I still apply that today, uh, but, but I remember that. So I'll say the biggest lesson, you know, number one was, again, constituents, making certain that they are aware and notified. Uh, and the second is, is probably preparation. And the third, I guess, would kind of be similar preparation. Always looking down the road, what, where will disruption occur, right? Yeah. And, and what can you pass to prevent 
negative impacts of disruption. Yeah, and, uh, makes sense. Um, now, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? constituents informed but it's easy today right yeah different world <laughs> yeah yeah totally the pandemic especially changed everything but i would say that would be the first advice um the second probably would be uh always be aware of uh additional funding opportunities particularly federal uh, funding and how you can try to channel that to benefit uh, your constituents. And of course we saw, particularly this last year, or last two years now, with the ARPA funding and the uh, infrastructure funding, excuse me, and the broadband funding, but all this uh, funding that occurs because of the philosophy of the president that's in office, right? Yeah. And if Biden loses in 2024, uh, a Republican elected, it's going to be a totally different philosophy as far as whose responsibility is it to provide, just like things like that again, broadband, water and sewer infrastructure, whose responsibility is that? And most Democrats believe it's a fed, in part a federal responsibility and most, most Republicans I believe that it's a, a state, I think, responsibility. But anyway, awareness of what's available and how do you use that to um, you know, to benefit your district or your uh, constituents. And I'm trying to think. And, you know, just, of course, yeah, it sounds like the same thing I said with the other question is, you know, be, be prepared. So, your constituent will be disadvantaged because you didn't do all your homework. Yeah, true. Uh, and, and of course, yeah, today always be careful about the ethics, right? Understand what are the ethics rules. Can you, you know, take a lunch, take a dinner, um, but, but, a lot of states the last, I guess particularly since 2010, I would say, the last 12 years, they're really, uh, they have much more conservative uh, ethics laws and far more limitations on what legislators uh, can like, take and accept. And that, uh, that, uh, that affects a lot of things, and a lot, lot more legislators today are investigated for ethics things. I think when they naively, um, you know, when they naively do something like again, go to whatever basketball, baseball game, not knowing that, you know, the tickets were whatever a hundred dollars, and the limit they can do is. Uh, you know, get a $50 ticket. I'm not sure what are the rules in Indiana now. 
as you know, everywhere they're far more conservative now. And a lot of that occurred um, after 2010, because prior to 2010, uh, 33 of the uh, 50 state legislatures were uh, controlled by Democrats. And today it's 18 that are controlled by Democrats and 32 controlled 33 controlled by Republican, or maybe 32 controlled by Republican, and maybe there's one split legislature. And that was a dramatic change. And sociologists will have to write about this. I'm convinced the biggest thing that happened that, you know, has had a, an impact uh, all over was the election of uh, President Obama in 2008. Okay. And when I got here in 2010, I'm sorry, I moved here in 2008, here down south, I saw what I saw down here. I didn't realize it was happening up north also, which was um, they used the election of uh, President Obama um, to create a lot of fear mm, okay and as a result they were able to take over a lot of legislature that had been historically um, you know Democrat just like down here when I came here let me just use this briefly as an example you know Alabama legis the House and the Senate were controlled by Democrats and the uh, by strong majorities and the governor was a Republican governor but there had been a rotation here, you know, Democrat, Republican, back and forth. But anyway, and I noticed in the, sorry, when the 2010 election, uh, Republicans had a great strategy. Obama was involved in every election, local election even, because they would run whatever the uh, issues were and all the campaigns were in, all the mills were in. I'm going to fight the Obama regulations. I'm going to fight the Obama this. I'm going to fight the Obama that. I'm going to fight the, you know, even though the say you have won't impact anything at federal level. And it was effective. Hmm, and it okay. created, I think, a lot of fear because, and this is, again, a, a book that a lot of folks haven't thought to read. They say, well, no, the nation changed. No, it changed because of what you planted in folks' minds. Just like what, unfortunately, what Fox has done. Mm-hmm. It's been very, it's been very effective that you have, you know, whatever seventy, I forget. It's like I don't know if I forget, like eighty, seventy or eighty percent of Republicans still believe that Biden did win legitimately because that seed's been planted and you know over and over and over reinforced. And anyway, so that's why you went from thirty-three Democrats. It'd be interesting if you were not aware to look it up sometimes. Prior to 2008 election, 33 state legislatures, through NCSL, National Council of State Legislators, is the exact set. You'll see it was 33 controlled by Democrats. How did all that turn around in, in two election cycles? Well, that was it. And now states have far more power. So that's why you, know, you see the funny, uh, you know, it looks kind of funny now. You say, well, hold on. If, if Biden, if there are overall more Democrats uh, in the U.S., at least when you look at the last you know, eight presidential elections, there's only been one that's more Republicans. 
right? That was George Bush in 2004. But since, you know, Clinton uh, in 92, you know, more Democrats, uh, you know, Clinton in 96, more Democrats. Bush in 2000, but it was more Democrats voted. You remember Gore still won, whatever, by uh, 500,000 votes. And then, of course, Bush in his re-election in 2004, that was the only time you had more Republican vote for president. And then 2008, of course, Obama. In 2012, Obama. Then, of course, in 2016, same thing. Clinton got more votes than Trump. And then, of course, in 2020, uh, Biden. But anyway, few folks think about that. Mm-hmm. In eight out of the last nine elections, you have more Democrats in the U.S., or at least where everyone's votes counts, right, without redistricting or anything, but yet the state legislatures are overwhelmingly majority Republican. Yeah. Right. Anyway, I'm sorry that was off a little bit, but... No, that's... No, that's... I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting because, I mean, it, it kind of fits, um, you know, the the trend that people will talk about in Indiana where it's, it's become much more Republican over time than the General Assembly here. Um, and, and that's why in Indiana... I remember this very because you know I was still there. Obama won Indiana two thousand and eight. Yeah. By one point or one and a half, and, and what changed? Well, again, is the, the state elections and today, folks. And I think a Democrat, you know, still or the right Democrat will have a chance at governor. And uh, you know, and, and and I may come back, and that's the only thing I would come back. If I come back, that's the only thing I would consider running for mm. governor. And I may, you know, I, like I said, my, my baby son gets out of um, high school in 2026. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something to look at. Yeah. A future possibility there, then. Yes, sir. Interesting. Okay. Um, and so, do you think that, um, based on the feeling you get, do you think that the Indiana General Assembly has become more? polarized since you left oh yeah 100 percent. okay oh without any (laughs) doubt yeah and and again i because you you hear up down south but i read about a lot of battles up there i think it's far more polarized and again when when my and i don't think it's a romantic recollection uh but again i had great friendships with you know david long dave and i played you know we played tennis together oh wow okay right? yeah you know uh murray clark we had this all kind of you know great debates you know bob garden um you know who was the pro team uh and i feel senator bray's name bray was a he probably considered me a far left democrat I consider myself kind of moderate, but Bray. Oh yeah, Bray's son. I think is in the Senate now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's probably a young far right conservative lawyer. He's probably very sharp because his dad was old school. But anyway, but very nice. You know, again, we, you know, we broke bread, Senator Meeks. Yeah, so I would say far more. And again, if they don't have the, and I don't know this now, so, but if they're not spending personal time with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Having lunches or dinners or out of session, just getting together and humanizing each other, right? Yeah. Uh, 
then yeah, it creates that polarization because you get that, and it depends also where they get their information from, right? Yep. And they're only getting their information from one source, and the one source, and you don't have to be a media expert now to see that if the case this week was voted was um, settled for seven hundred eighty-five million dollars. Yeah. To a, comp- a company that probably wasn't valued at four hundred million, you know, there's there's these next two cases that are going to likely settle too. Yep. And it's because of the fear of once you're under oath, you have to tell the truth. And um, anyway, uh, again, that's the shame. But yeah, but I but I think now with that said, okay, with that said, I think it's polarization on the other side too. Mm-hmm. Right, but not, but not nearly as well. Well, not nearly as bad as on the because again, to actually manipulate people to believe a lie when you know it's so when you know it's not the truth. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just you know very painful. But if that's their only source of news, and you know that's like painful. But you know, there's like too much. Anti-Trumpism. I think when you watch CNN and uh, MSNBC mm-hmm. too, uh, I think it's some overkill where you can find out. You know, what are the good things? You know, the President Trump did. Well, he did some good things certainly, and he hired a lot of good people, and a lot of the impacts of the big tax cut in 2017 benefited the United States. Made Companies more internationally competitive, right? Which generated more revenue here, allowed existing businesses to stay. And uh, but anyway, but 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 the nasty, the nastiness of the polarization is, you know, that's what's really bothersome. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Last question then for you. Um, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? Oh, I think today more than ever they can have great influence by simply, you know, keeping up with the issues and letting their legislator know how they feel, whether they support or oppose. And they have access today, far more uh, unlimited access than they had even 25 years ago uh, or 27 years ago when, when I was elected. And so I would say, you know, be aware, you know, carve out time uh, each day to read the paper or read the summaries or read whatever your uh, rep or your senator is sending out. And today, and again, this didn't exist uh, 25 years ago. They can go online in every state now. And on the same day a bill is filed, they can read the bill and read the summary and read the fiscal note and see the impact. And they can attend public hearings because all those are posted. So I would say that general kind of awareness that they can be, they can have a vital uh, role in the process today where they couldn't have as a result of this kind of, I call it the digital transformation that we're going through with everything. And yeah. as a result of that digital transformation and the fact that the pandemic accelerated it, but the benefit to constituents, to voters, to citizens, 
is they have the ability to keep up today. And when they do, they can be advocates for whatever issues uh, they would like and, and have an impact. Because the legislator, no matter how good a lobbyist he is and what information she or he provides, that information is never as valuable as the information from your constituents. So if lobbyists uh, tell you something, it, tell the legislator or inform, educate legislator, that's good, but they're informed by their constituents, it's always better. As in they're sure that they're playing that role in democracy, really making democracy work of listening for the constituents. And so you have government for the people and by the people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask about that you wanted to mention about uh, your experiences, or do we cover it all? Or yeah, you know, again, it was very pleasant experiences. We were we were at that time, at least as we were Democrats and Republicans. We were Republicans and Democrats, but um, you know, as I look back, I, I look back with a lot of uh, a great memories and I very little uh, acrimony we argued about things but I wouldn't say it was uh, you know acrimonious and and I look back with a lot of uh, uh, fondness I think of the process and you know I remember having friends on both sides uh, of the aisle and you know, it was kind of, uh, you know, again, like Dickens, you know, the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. And the, the best of times were the relationships. The worst of times is when I got bills passed that I fought hard against. But even in those situations, you still had uh, good relationships and you didn't have nearly the level of uh, polarization or partisanship that you have today. And that from my perspective, uh, is most uh, damaging. Uh, and I think, you know, particularly um, uh, being an African-American that uh, I represent a large, of course, of course, in 50 company. And most of the issues that I'm uh, lobbying on today are issues dealing with, you know, broadband and the digital divide and, yeah, you know, they're they're real. They're issues that it's easy to see how you can be bipartisan, mm-hmm. right? Because everyone, I think, you know, understands today the need to have broadband to you know, positively impact education and economic development and healthcare and you know children's basic opportunities to learn. And so it's kind of easy. So I don't have to deal with with many partisan. Uh, issues today and it's easy for me to kind of just focus on what's good for everyone what's good for america and uh, but i enjoyed uh, my four years there it certainly helped prepare me for uh, this career which you know i never at the time i ran for office never planned on going to corporate america but god has blessed me with incredible opportunities and it's worked out yeah, yes, so. seems like it. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time uh, to do an interview for this project. I think uh, it'll be a really cool addition to everything, and uh, you definitely covered a lot of interesting historical things, so I appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right, Ben. Pleasure meeting you, and if you need me down the road, you know how to uh, get in contact with me. Yeah, absolutely. I'll let you know uh, when your interview's posted online for the project website and stuff. Yes, sir. You take care. All right, thanks. You too. Have a nice weekend. You Bye. too. Bye-bye.